Welcome to Living Truth Radio, a ministry of Living Truth Christian Fellowship with Pastor Michael Lands. It's our goal to build up believers and to reach out with God's truth to all people. And now, here's Pastor Michael. 1 Samuel 13. And the raiders, or the raiding parties, NIV, came from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. So as Israel's watching with this little reduced army, one company turned toward, you didn't know Oprah was mentioned in the Bible too, but there she is. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Ophrah to the land of Shul. Um, I do know that Oprah has some roots in the Christian church, but she's embraced some pretty strange views, to say the least. Another company turned toward Beth Haran, and another company turned toward the border which overlooks the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. So Saul and Jonathan, along with 600 men, are watching the Philistine base, and right across from them is the enemy, I'm sure within their sight, and they're watching raiding parties, companies of raiders going out. They're sending out uh, raiding parties to the north, to the west, and to the east. There's movement in the enemy camp. And when you start to look, you start to say, wow, we might want to do something. What should we do? A little further insight into the great victory that God will bring. It says, now no blacksmith could be found in all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So they took away all opportunity to have weapons. That's just a pregnant pause. All opportunity was taken away to have weapons. So all Israel went down to the Philistines, each to sharpen his plowshare, things for farming, his mattock, his axe, and his hoe. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, the mattocks, the forks, the axes, and to fix the hose. So they had a, cornered the market. There was a monopoly for the Philistines to make all this money, but they wouldn't allow weapons. And so it came about on the day of battle that neither sword nor spear was found in the hands of any of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. Now you find out a little bit more about this army. They didn't have any weapons. Or whatever weapons they had were makeshift weapons that weren't going to do much damage. And that's because the Philistines set it up that way. Isn't it convenient? When you can take away weapons from your enemy. The Bible is called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And the enemy wants to take the weapon away from you. He said, you don't need to read your Bible. You don't need to be consistently going to Bible study. You don't need to listen to sermons. You don't need that. And the Bible is called the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. The master swordsman, Jesus, pulled it out and said three times to the devil, it is written, it is written, it is written. And that word in Greek means it stands written forever. You're not going to argue against the word of God. When David takes on the uncircumcised Philistine a little later, we're going to see in this book, he says, and that all this assembly, 1747, may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. He said that to a pretty tall giant. And he was a little youth. And David and Jonathan are yoked together together by the heart of faith. 
It's pretty cool when you can charge the hill with somebody who has the same faith as you have. So the victory belongs to the Lord. And so the day of battle is here, but there's no weapons. But they were found with Saul and his son Jonathan. Apparently the only ones who had sword and spear was the king and his son. And that's not very much to go around when two guys among 600 actually have weapons. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash, probably somewhere in the gorge that separated Michmash and Geba. So they're moving. Raiding parties are going out. The raiders have gone out in these different directions. And now some of the main garrison party moves into the gorge. And now you can see that Saul and the rest of the soldiers who are now this reduced army are wondering, what do we do now? The scene is now set for the battle. Now the day came, and I believe it's the day of battle in context, if you look back at 1322, that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, he's his armor bearer, we'll find out in a moment, come and let us cross over to the Philistine garrison that is on yonder side. But he said, don't tell dad. Don't tell dad. (laughs) Don't tell dad. Doesn't it sound just like a teenager? Usually it's don't tell your mom. Usually the dad's saying that, but here it is. He did not tell his father. He said just to his armor bearer, let's cross over. Now think of the, think of the magnitude of what's against them. Huge Philistine army, reduced numbers on their side, and he doesn't want to tell anybody, including his dad, the king, that they're going. And he says, we're going to cross over to these people. Do you remember the great scene? I think it's in the last Lord of the Rings movies. When uh, King Aragon, you know, the, the orcs are, they're, they're uh, finally taking this uh, final city and they're smashing down the door and Aragon looks at the king and says, ride out with me. Let's face him, ride out with me. And at first the king says, oh, no, everything's lost, everything's lost. And Aragon says, no ride out with me. And they get on horses. And you remember there's a great scene where they ride down. They start knocking orcs down to the ground. It's tremendous. If you haven't seen the movie, shame on you. I I don't even know what to tell you. (laughs) You need to repent. (laughs) So he says, come, let us cross over. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Do you remember when they came to the edge of the Jordan River and God told them, prepare yourself. I want, God gave them three days and they had to do some sanctification work and they had to stare at their obstacle for a while and they, they were going to cross over and they had to take the, the first major uh, roadblock was Jericho. But before they got to Jericho, they had to cross the Jordan. If you've ever seen the Jordan River, it's not terribly impressive, by the way. But it was at flood stage. And what they were told was to take the ark and the priests were supposed to go into the Jordan. And God said, when they step into the Jordan, that's when I will part the river. Not before. And the priests are going to lead the way with the ark. And the ark represents the presence of God. In essence, God's saying, I will go and take the step and part the river. But if you were the priest in front that day, you had a moment of decision. 
Because based upon the topography of the land and what I understand the flood stage of the Jordan River to be, your first step was not put your toe in the water. Your first step was not ankle or knee deep. If you took the step of faith, you were in over your head. In essence, brothers and sisters, if God doesn't part the river, you and the ark are going down. That is the step of faith that the children of Israel are asked to take to cross over an obstacle. Faith, please hear me well, will always have an obstacle. And it will always have an obstacle that seems to be impassable, seems to be unpenetrable. That's how God wants it, by the way. He doesn't want it to be something that you could conquer by saying, is it 85 degrees in the Jordan? Because I only go in if it's 85. Right? No, if you're in the front of the ark and you're going to take that step, you're going to be in over your head unless God parts that river. And that's exactly what God wants. That's why steps of true faith are so uncomfortable. Because God has got to come through or you're all wet. Hmm. Changes my perspective a little bit. Now, God did part the river, and the interesting thing about that account, and if you go back and read Joshua 3 and 4 later, you'll find that God, he stopped the waters in a heap in the river, somewhere downriver, not very far, definitely within the sight of the priests, and he, he allowed the people to cross. And there were, were quite a few Israelites at this time, do you remember? There were a lot of them. So as you go into the river, you get to stay there as the priest while the water's up in a heap while people cross over this river. And God's just holding it back. And at any time, if he let it go, guess what? You're done again. So it wasn't just faith to step in. It was also faith to stay still and see the salvation of the Lord. So sometimes I can take a step of faith and I feel pretty good. Okay, the Lord met me there. But sometimes it's harder by faith to take a stand and stay there. To stay in a relationship that's strained. To stay in a difficult work environment where you know you really want to get out but the Lord's not giving you the green light yet. To stay the course in terms of a battle that you have with the flesh. And God's been telling you, lay that down. Take your stand and don't go backward. Well, Jonathan's about to take a huge step of faith. And the contrast is the camera pans back to Saul for a moment. Is Saul, his dad, was staying, verse 2, chapter 14, in the outskirts of Gibeah. That might be synonymous with Geba. He was under the pomegranate tree. Now, there's a couple of different um, ideas here which we could talk about, which is in Migron. He could be under the pomegranate tree because he's just taking a siesta. <laughs> now think about what's happening, though. Um, the, the garrison movement into the gorge of the, of the ravine, the raiders are going out 
in all these different directions. It's not a time to be sitting under a tree. But the word staying under the tree could be translated in Hebrew that he was sitting there. And so Saul was often sitting when he should have been moving. He was praying when he should have been doing something. And then he failed to pray when he should have prayed. That's what made him a questionable leader. But sitting under the pomegranate tree may speak of a leadership and jurisdiction because oftentimes a tree became a place where a leader set up camp and even maybe tried to decide a battle plan. So he may not be being lazy here. Uh, There's the Oaks of Mamre and there's other places in the Bible where uh, Bible leaders are stationed under a tree and it's like a temporary outpost for their leadership position. That may be what's going on too. But he's on the outskirts, he's pushed up the hill, and he's gotten further away from the enemy, and his son's going towards the enemy with him and his armor bearer, and Saul has moved away from the enemy. And the people who were with him, would you notice the repetition? There are about 600 men. It seems like the narrator keeps reminding us of the small numbers, I think because Saul is focused on the numbers. And he has some other people with him. He's got people, he's got some military men, 600. And Ahijah is with him. His name means, my brother is Yah. He's the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eli, the priest of the Lord at Shiloh. And this man, Ahijah, who was the priest, was wearing an ephod, and the ephod oftentimes had a pocket for the Urim and the Thummim. We don't know exactly how it worked, but they would ask, as the priests wore the ephod, they would ask for counsel from the Lord. And the priests would be asking for the Lord to give direction. And that may be why the ephod is mentioned. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So Saul has got some advisors around him, but I think the narrator has mentioned the family history to point out a couple of things. <laughs> Number one, this Ahijah is the grandson of Eli, and Eli didn't do that great as a priest. And he is the nephew of Ichabod. And if you remember back in chapter 4, Ichabod's name means the glory is departing. It's Ichabod time. As the ark was going, the glory was departing from Israel. And I think the mention of that connection may be that the priest is not very spiritual or he's not a fully committed man. But Jonathan has gone towards the enemy while Saul is seeking counsel from a man whose uncle is Ichabod. Hmm. And here's another piece of irony. Saul's kingdom was slipping away. And just as Ichabod's name means the glory is departing, well, Saul's kingdom was slipping. Indeed, he had been told that the kingdom was going to be gone. Now, it says, between the passes, verse 4, by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag, literally means the teeth of a rock, on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. And the name of the one was Bozes. Uh, Some scholars think that means the gleaming or the miry one. And the name of the other was Sene. It could mean the thorny one. 
The one crag, literally the teeth of rock, rose on the north opposite Michmash, and the other on the opposite Ge- of uh, south opposite Geba. So notice that between the passes, Jonathan is seeking now to cross over. He knows that the enemies moved into the gorge, and he's seeking now to cross over. He's got some some places that can cover him, these little crags, but. He's thinking of crossing over. And if you're the armor bearer of Jonathan, armor bearers were simply uh, people that kings and generals selected, the bravest of men, to bear their armor. The armor bearer would carry and maintain his superior's armor, stand by him in danger, and carry out his orders. Now, if you're a faithful armor bearer, it's kind of a cool thing, right? I get to you know, carry the armor of the, one of the superior's but you have to be asking a question at this point. Something like this if you're the armor bearer. Jonathan, what in the world are you doing? What are you thinking? They have huge numbers. Your dad's up there under the pomegranate tree. I don't know what he's doing. And you're heading towards these people. These Philistines, they got raiders going out. They're ready to kill us all. And Jonathan has a plan. His plan is simply to trust God. He's about to cross over by faith. You remember when Jesus sent the disciples in the boat and he said, we're going to cross over to the other side. And Jesus dismissed the crowds. This is recorded in Mark and Matthew and I think Luke and John, at least John as well. And it says after he dismissed the crowds, The disciples were in the boat and Jesus went up to the mountain to pray. And they were on the Sea of Galilee and he was in prayer. And the beautiful picture that emerges is that Jesus, as he's on the mountain and they're in the Sea of Galilee down below, it's a picture of his intercessory ministry. But he doesn't come to them until, what was it, I think the fourth watch of the night? That's between 3 and 6 a.m., And he let them strain at the oars while the water of the Sea of Galilee was tumultuous and apparently he let them strain for about eight to ten hours while he prayed for them. And the guys in the boat at some point, do you think that this was probably the discussion at some point? We're going to and then something like this. Where is he? He said, we're going to the other side. I know, but I don't know. Ever been there before? Straining. Lord, where are you? You've made promises. The Bible says you're up there in heaven always interceding for me, but I'm straining at this oar. I've been in this car with screaming children for eight to ten hours. Come walking on the freeway, would you? And then he came to them walking on the sea. And they were frightened. They thought it was a ghost, do you remember? They thought, in Jewish thought, the sea was sometimes equated with the abyss. And when they saw the figure coming, they thought it was the death angel. They thought they were going to die. They thought, our time's up. It's some sort of 
death angel or demon. We don't know what it is. And they cried out, and Jesus said, Take courage. It's me. Peter said, If it's you, then bid me to come to you on the water. Jesus said, Come! You want to talk about a step of faith? Okay, if it's you, Lord. I mean, everybody's down on Peter, but Peter was the only one that I know of that got out of the boat. Amen? If it's you, bid me to come. Come! Now, any scene you have in your mind of a placid lake, glassy, get it out of your mind. The boat's being rocked everywhere. Jesus is literally walking on top of waves. I've got a picture in my home that kind of depicts this. And so Peter, when he comes on the water, it's not like, hey, cool, you know, this calm little water. No, this is, right? And it's not until he takes his eyes off the Lord and begins to look at the waves that he, what, he begins to sink. And What's Jesus' words to him? You remember? Oh, you of little faith, why did you? Why did you doubt? Why did you take your eyes off of me? What's the subject matter? Faith. What's the boat about? Building faith. He is the author and perfecter. He's going to finish it too, but he's in the faith perfecting business. Something you need to know about God. He's in the faith perfecting business. And sometimes when you're in a rocky boat or a difficult situation or a rocky crag, (laughs) dad's up there under the tree, big enemy over there, you might be right where God wants you to be. Because he's a faith stretcher. You know, the three to three and a half year ministry of Jesus with the disciples is really about that. He was trying to get them to increase their faith. Do you know we often call the Christian life a faith journey? It's going to lead us one day to the ultimate destination, to the ultimate promised land not easy those ravines look easy to you no steps of faith are rarely easy indeed I would confess to you they challenge me to my core because I'm a self starter and I like to do things and get stuff done and oftentimes I think Pastor Chris mentioned this in the last few weeks God says wait what Wait, I don't like waiting. I don't even like that clock when you're waiting for your burrito at the fast food place. That annoys me. <laughs> anyway, just a personal confession. Then Jonathan, Jonathan said to the young man, to the armor bearer who was carrying his armor, come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised, very similar to what David said about Goliath, perhaps, would you notice that? Perhaps the Lord will work for us. Now, if I'm the armor bearer, I'm going to question right there. What do you mean, perhaps? 
You're this giant of the faith. Don't be throwing a perhaps in there. I like to parse language. Certainly would be a much better option at this point. Perhaps, what do you mean perhaps? He says, perhaps the Lord will work for us, for the Lord's not restrained to save by many or by few. Do you see a little bit of irony here? Thank you for listening to today's program. If you'd like to listen to this message again, learn more about our church in Corona, or to access archived messages, go to livingtruthradio.org and click on the church tab. You can follow us on Instagram at livingtruthcorona or download the Living Truth Christian Fellowship app on Apple and Android devices. Living Truth Radio is a listener-supported ministry. You can partner with us by donating at livingtruthradio.org. Well, there's a great scene at the end of 1 Samuel 13 leading into chapter 14, and it's Jonathan and his armor-bearer crossing over by faith. You know, um, the war had heated up and the battle lines were drawn, and Jonathan and his armor-bearer decided to do something radical. They decided to take a step of faith. You could call this a leap of faith. And this is what they did. Jonathan said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come, let us cross over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. You know, we think that things restrain God, but nothing restrains the Lord. Nothing will keep him from working. You know, the only thing that I would say that he really wants to have us do to see his power on display is to have faith. Faith that crosses over, faith that moves us forward. I'm not talking about presumption, but I'm talking about trusting God with big things. I'm, taking, I'm talking about taking some risks of faith. I'm talking about stepping over, crossing over and saying, God, if you don't show up, this isn't going to work, but I believe that you're going to show up. And here is a great step of faith. This is the stuff, I think, of movies. This, is, this would be a great movie scene because with God, all things are possible. Now, we don't necessarily, we're not always talking about great faith. We are talking about faith in a great God. But true faith in God is when we decide that, you know what? Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Genesis 18, 14. Job 42, 1. You can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. The earth, by thy great power, by thine outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for thee. Jeremiah 32, 17. But with God, all things are possible. Matthew 19, 26. You see, God wants us to move forward in faith, to cross over. Is there some boundary that's looked too big for you? Is it a Red Sea, a Jordan River, a giant wall of Jericho? What's keeping you from crossing over and experiencing more victory in your life? Is it a lack of faith? 